The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Good morning. My name's Chase, and I'm one of the pastors here, and this is Mark, who's also one of the pastors here. And today, Mark is a father of one. Oh, he gets better. Tomorrow, Mark is going to be a father of two. So we are really excited about that. So you pray for, a, for Haley, Mark's wife, and pray for this baby. It'll be delivered tomorrow just for God's protection and grace over them and, uh, and that Mark gets some sleep in the coming weeks. And uh, Haley does as well. We want to rejoice with the Rojases today. Uh, the scripture tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. And so we have some dear friends to weep with today as well. John Mayo, who many of you know and have followed, kind of had the journey of his sickness, went to be with the Lord just before 1 a.m. this morning. So we want to be lifting up Nikki and their boys and praying for their family that God would give them comfort as they grieve with hope. We will ask God's hand of grace on them. Also, just to mention to you, coming up, starting next week, we've got a systematic theology class where Bob Weber will be teaching on the core doctrine, doctrines of the Christian faith. That's 11 a.m. in Creekside Commons, led by one of our elders, Bob Weber. We're almost done with the Gospel of Mark. Life comes at you fast, and so does the Gospel of Mark. We've only got 72 verses this week to study, so... I'll try to figure out how to come up with 35 minutes to talk to you. Life comes at you really fast, and we come at life fast as well. We come at life with expectations, and life responds to those expectations. Sometimes our expectations are met. Sometimes they're not met. Sometimes they're exceeded. I think one of the most shocking expectations that we have is that Really, if you come face to face with Jesus Christ in all honesty, you find out you're not the person that you thought you were. That's what one of his disciples is going to find out. And so when you come to that and you see the grace of Jesus Christ, then you can just overflow and express beautiful, wonderful, costly worship. You can deny that it's true and run from it. You can wrestle with it and repent. We see kind of all of those things happen in Mark 14 as we look at the unexpected king. This may shock you this morning. We will not read all 72 verses to start our time. We're going to read the first nine. It was two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at a table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of, flask of ointment of pure nard, <clears throat> very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii or more than 300 days' wages, almost a year's worth of money. And it could have been given to the poor, and they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. 
Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Well, God, we come before you and we thank you, God, for your word. We thank you, Lord, that Jesus defies and exceeds all the expectations we could ever have. He is able to do far beyond what we could ask or imagine. God, we thank you for this picture of worship from this lady who anointed Jesus for burial. And God, through these verses and all the rest we'll study today, we pray that you would teach us that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, that we might understand the gospel and that we might live out its implications for your glory and for the joy of all peoples. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. With such a a strange aside how this begins, they're seeking a way to kill him. These are the religious leaders, but they say not during the festival or the people may riot. They're afraid of what the people might do. These are the leaders of Israel. They're about to celebrate a feast that reminds them of God's deliverance. And it's through his judgment passing over them. And, And because they're afraid of people, they decide not to kill him at the feast. Not because of thou shalt not kill, right? Not because of the Ten Commandments, not because of the word of God, but because of fear of the people, they don't want to kill him during the feast. And it's so strange because all of their evil intentions and goodness, their intentions are evil. They cannot stop the plan of God. They will, in fact, play right into the plan of God to redeem the Gentiles they hate, to exalt the Christ that they reject, and to show the world the love of God that they have failed to display. So we're going to look at this text in about seven categories this morning, spend a little bit of time on each one, and the first is unexpected worship. This lady comes in the room, they're reclining at the table, and she does the unimaginable. Number one, just as a lady in the culture, she is defying what she ought to be doing, what culture says that she can do when she comes with this extravagant act of worship. And as she breaks this jar, the room begins to fill with this amazing aroma. It's the aroma of worship. And just lavishly, she pours it out to anoint Jesus. The disciples are bothered by it, but it's this beautiful and glorious and wonderful act of worship. Now, when they said 300 denarii, 300 days wages, it just made me ask, what's the most expensive perfume bottle you can buy? And there is one that you could buy for $1.2 million, but that's not about the perfume, It's in the Middle East, it's in Saudi, and it's about the diamonds and gold on the bottle. But there is this perfume maker who's made a lot of the famous perfumes that we know, and he will make you a custom perfume. I cannot pronounce his name because it's French. I just remember the ending. It goes, "Uh right? (laughs) He, if you wanted to, he will make you perfume 
or $55,000. So when I read that, I looked at my wife's Amazon wish list for Christmas, and that was not on it. I was really glad. Can you imagine how extravagant a gift? This was probably given to this woman as a dowry or may have been in her family as an heirloom. And she just says, I'm gonna pour out this treasure on the greatest treasure ever, King Jesus. And there are four things about worship that we can see from what she does that are true about worship today. Number one, it's costly. Worship is costly. We lay aside the things of this world to turn to Jesus Christ. We lay aside our desires, our hopes, our dreams. We surrender to King Jesus in worship. Number one, it's costly. Number two, it comes through broken vessels. The disciples are bothered by this. Jesus says she did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. She broke this jar and poured out the perfume. Worship comes through broken vessels. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 and 7, God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, right? Genesis 1, 4, let there be light, made his light to shine in our hearts. Why? To give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory, displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay or earthen vessels. They break very easily. Why? To show this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. It's costly. It comes through broken vessels. We have to understand our brokenness before God if we would truly worship God. We have to understand our sinfulness and need for a Savior if we would give him the worship, the glory, do his name. Number three, its focus is on the beauty of Jesus, on all of his perfections, The disciples are thinking about the poor, which is a fine thing to think about, but the poor aren't preeminent. Jesus is, and worship is focused on the beauty and the glory and the work of Jesus Christ. And then worship, back then and today, is misunderstood by many. It's not about songs or what makes me feel good. It never has something other than Jesus as its focus. Worship is defined by something external to the worshiper. Does it give glory to God? But what about the poor? What about the poor? The poor you'll always have with you and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. Was Jesus saying, don't be concerned for the poor? No, but the poor aren't preeminent. Jesus is, the gospel is the center. Jesus is the most important thing. Now, if you know Jesus, you see people in tribulation It makes a whole lot of sense that we would do good to them, that our doctrine, our gospel doctrine, that Jesus is king would lead to gospel culture, that we love one another and we love the vulnerable. When Jesus says this, he's quoting the law. He's quoting Deuteronomy 15.11. Deuteronomy 15.11 says, there will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you, be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. So yes, of course, we care for the poor, but we don't make the poor or any other cause the center. Jesus is the center of what we do. And so we worship in a way that the world doesn't expect. Well, this lady has unexpected worship. Judas has unmet expectations. 
It's a couple of days before Jesus is going to die, and Judas Iscariot, who is one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. Verse 11 says, when they heard it, they were glad. They promised to give him money. And so he sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. We're going to fast forward a little bit and then come back. Look at verse 18. Jesus is having the Passover with his disciples. And when they're reclining at the table, Jesus says, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. And they began to be sorrowful and say to him, one after the other, is it I? Is it I? Is it me? Am I the one? Far different from kind of the Western mindset where we'd go, I'd never do that. Of course not. Yeah, I wonder who it is. It must be that guy. I don't like him. He disagrees with me. He likes a different team than me, different political affiliation than me. That's a Jesus betrayer. I'm not a Jesus betrayer. We would do well to learn from the disciples, to have much less confidence in ourselves. So he says, it's one of the 12, one who's dipping bread into his dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. God's plan, the scripture, is going to be fulfilled, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Another gospel writer says that Satan has entered Judas. He's taken control of him. And all the evil in the world, as we go through the chapter, it's just coming and putting its focus and its aim on Jesus Christ to thwart the plan of God, to stop the Son of God. But the evil ends up playing right into God's hand. See, Judas had hopes. He had dreams for Israel. He was looking for a way up and a way out for his people. And Jesus wasn't the Messiah he was expecting. He wanted a little self-care for his people. He just wanted Israel to love itself. He thought the Messiah would help them to do that, but not Jesus. Jesus came and said, if you would come after me, deny yourself. He didn't meet Judas's expectations. Does he meet yours and mine? Better if he had never been born. See, he didn't meet Judas' expectations, but he exceeded what the disciples were expecting for Passover. And it's just this beautiful and glorious picture. It's the first day of unleavened bread. They're about to have the Passover, and so they make a plan. They've got to have the meal somewhere. And so they ask, teacher, how are we going to do this? And he tells them, you go to this place, you see a guy carrying a jar of water, and follow him and wherever he enters the teacher say the teacher needs a guest room where's my guest room and he'll he'll set you up with a room you'll get a place and so they did this and they found it just as he had told them and they prepared the Passover and so when it's evening he comes to them and and Judas he tells them he's going to betray them but then listen to verse 22 as they were eating he took the bread and after blessing he broke it and said to them take this is my body And he took a cup when he had given thanks. He he gave it to them and they all drank of it. And he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. I'm about to die. This is the last time I'm going to drink. And then I'm going to be raised up. I'll be in the kingdom when I drink it again. 
Well, that's different than how the Passover goes, right? The Passover, they're remembering God's deliverance from slavery in Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. God delivered them with an outstretched arm, with a mighty hand from this evil king, Pharaoh, through these 10 plagues. And the last plague was the worst. The angel of darkness flew over the land of Egypt and the children of Israel put the blood of a lamb on their doorpost. And when the angel of darkness saw the blood of the lamb, it passed over. Judgment passed over the house, but not so for Egypt. Judgment came on the firstborn of all the Egyptians. And so they remembered they had unleavened bread. They had lamb that night. They're remembering the Passover through the bread and the wine and Jesus says, no, 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 this is different. This night, this night that's about to come, judgment is not coming on the firstborn of Egypt, it is coming on the firstborn of God. And if you have his blood covering your heart by grace through faith, the judgment of God that you deserve and I deserve will pass over you. This is my body. When you think about this bread, don't think about Egypt, think about me. We, we take pictures of all kinds of things. We used to take pictures of special events like graduations, vacations, weddings. We got these great pictures of my daughter's wedding. I just look at them over and over, just love this special day. But now we, we take pictures of everything, the coffee that we're drinking, the food that we're eating. I mean, I, I like Whataburger as much as the next guy, but I don't really want to see your bacon barbecue burger, right? It just makes me jealous. See, pictures were meant to help us commemorate something. So that's what the Passover did. They didn't have cameras back in B.C. Egypt. I'm not sure if you knew that or not, right? In Jesus' day, they didn't either. And so the Passover is a picture of what God had done to redeem his people. And Jesus is saying, hey, there's a new picture. It's even better than what you've known. And Passover, I am the new deliverer. And so it says, take, this is my body. It's a new picture. And then he says, this is the new covenant. This wine you drink is the new covenant in my blood. Now, this is amazing. We tend to hear new covenant and we think we're not bound by law anymore. We're not under law anymore. And that's true, but that's not all. For hundreds of years, the Israelites had been reading their prophets talking about this new covenant God would make. He promised to make with his people. And listen to what it says in Ezekiel chapter 11. This new covenant comes. God's going to remove their heart of stone. Ezekiel 36, God's going to give them a heart of flesh, put a new spirit in them, even his spirit. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, he said he would circumcise their hearts, not their flesh, so that they might truly love him as Lord. In Jeremiah 31, it says that he would forgive their sins and remember them no more. That he would write the law on their hearts so that they would delight to do his will. And then it says that he's going to be their God and they will know him personally. And then in Jeremiah 32, 40, when this new covenant comes, he says, I'll never turn away from doing you good. So Jesus just makes this amazing pronouncement. It, this is the new covenant. Here's the new covenant. I'm gonna pour my blood out for you. 
I'm gonna do the ultimate good for you. I'm gonna put my spirit in you and I will never turn away from doing you good. You'll be with me always and forever in this life. I'll be with you till the end of the age and then we will be together forever because I'm going to take the judgment of God on me. That's the new covenant. So in another gospel, he tells them, as often as you do this, you're going to do this. This is going to be something to commemorate. As often as you do it, you do it in remembrance of me. So we're going to stop just right now in the middle of the sermon and remember Jesus through the elements. And we're going to do this because he is at the center of what we do. And we want to give him glory and honor as we remember him. Now, the scripture says, let us examine ourselves before we eat of the bread and drink of the cup. It's a serious moment and a serious matter as we take these symbols to remember how Christ has loved us. So let's take a moment to examine ourselves. Jesus, we humble ourselves before you. We're grateful for your body and we're grateful for your blood. We're grateful for you pouring yourself out and taking the wrath of God upon yourself in our place. And so we pause and we remember you and we say thank you, God, that you, for all who are in Christ in this room, you've removed our hearts of stone. You've put a new heart in us. You've given your spirit to us and caused us to love you. You've forgiven our sins and written your law on our hearts. You are our God and we know you as your people. And you'll never turn away from doing us good. And so we say thank you as we remember, amen. So as we remember, we take this bread as a symbol of his body that was broken for us. And then just as the disciples we to remember his blood poured out as a new covenant. We remember his blood poured for us as we take the cup together. And we thank God together for the now risen Christ, just as the disciples did. Now, as we take the bread and drink the cup, it's a good moment to recognize how good God is because this night as we continue to read, we're gonna see the fickle hearts of the disciples. Some of us, we're gonna take this and we're gonna walk out of this place and we are gonna blow it, right? And the grace of Jesus Christ is going to be right there for us then. Just like it is for his disciples, we gotta keep reading to see They eat the meal together and then they sing a hymn and they go out to the Mount of Olives and Jesus says, you're going to all fall away. One of you is going to betray me. That's not bad enough. You're going to all fall away for it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I will go before you into Galilee. And Peter says, even though they all fall away, I will not And Jesus says, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. 
But Peter says, emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. No, 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 Jesus, I am who I think I am. I'm the good sort of person I think I am. Even if I have to die with you, I won't deny you. They're shocked by Jesus's unexpected prediction. And they're willing to fight with him. Peter, as we continue reading, he's going to cut off the, the ear of the high priest's servant, Malchus. Another gospel writer tells us Jesus puts it right back on and tells Peter to put his sword away. They're ready to fight for the kingdom how they want to fight. But they're not ready to surrender and die. You've heard us talk about and other pastors talk about it. It's like we look at God and we go, I'll run a thousand miles for you in this direction. And he says, no, I'd like you just to take one step to the left. And we look at what's left and go, I don't, I don't want to do that. I'll run a thousand miles for you. You know, you just step right over here. Oh, oh no. no, I want to do this my way, right? See, I, I see people today so sure they're going to follow Jesus to the end and they're really worried that the end is coming. And I, I wrestle with whether or not they will, frankly, because it, it seems like all they're ever doing is figuring out how they can prepare to preserve their lives. When Jesus said his followers would lay down their lives. So with, with Peter, we would do well to have much less confidence in ourselves and pray for much more confidence in Jesus because he is faithful. See, there's this unexpected prediction and then there's unexpected weariness. They went to a place called Gethsemane and Jesus says to his disciples, wait here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, the inner circle, and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed. If it were possible, the hour might pass from him. Another gospel says that when he's praying, it's so intense that he begins to sweat drops of blood. As he cries out, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Well, why is he troubled and distressed? Why is his soul sorrowful? Why is he going to sweat drops of blood? The answer is, but maybe not so obvious. The answer is he's going to go to the cross for us. And while what physically happened to him on the cross is unimaginably horrible, we can't grasp how gruesome a sight it would have been. We would all want to turn our faces away. But I don't think that is why his soul is sorrowful even unto death. He's so burdened because he's going to take sin upon himself. See, all the evil in the world has put its focus on him to crush the plans of God in this moment. So all the evil of the Romans and the Jews and the Herodians and the Pharisees and all the sins his disciples have committed. And every wayward thought that you and I have ever had, 
every small deceit that we've considered or gone about, all the bitterness, the frustration, the anger that we've experienced is going to fall on him. His burden is not in the beam that he will carry, but in the brokenness and sin of fallen humanity that it represents. And this is the plan. It's the only plan of God for the deliverance of humanity from sin and death. And Jesus is going to become the atoning sacrifice for our sins. But he's going to do it by taking our sins upon himself. Taking the full bore wrath of God that you and I deserve. He's going to be our representative before God. Taking the responsibility that we bear for breaking God's law. Assuming a responsibility for the punishment we deserve. The wrath of God. And so now to those who believe we are in him and we receive care and adoption and love and redemption. We get what he deserves. It wasn't just their evil he's taking away, it's ours. Every wicked intention of our hearts and mind is falling on him. Could you not just watch and pray for one hour? He finds them sleeping again. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation for the spirit is willing and the flesh is weak. Do you wonder if Peter is maybe beginning to realize I'm, I'm not the man I thought I was? I had a good friend a couple of years ago that, that just found himself in sin and the pain of his sin, he was just facing it. And he just said, man, I thought I was a good man, Chase, but I'm not. I'm not the man I thought I was. Well, isn't that true of all of us? We're not the people we think we are. The Spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. It's not just true of Jesus' disciples. It's true of all of us. And so Jesus goes away a third time and sees them sleeping again. And he says, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It's such a strange thing. Because just a few days before, Dave taught us in Mark chapter 13. He had told them, you need to stay alert, be on your guard, stay awake. Be alert, be awake, be on your guard. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch, stay alert and just two days later, not toward the end, not when tribulation comes, right now. They're sleeping. And he says, the hour has come, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners, rise. My betrayer is at hand. And so while he's still speaking, Judas came, who's one of the 12, and he has with them this whole army of people with swords and clubs. And he He's told them, the one I kiss, that's, that's the one. And so he walks up to Jesus and he says, Rabbi, teacher, and he kisses him. He betrays his friend with a kiss. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But, but one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant, the high priest. Jesus has an unexpected response, though. He says, have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? 
Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching, and you didn't seize me, but let the scripture be fulfilled. So you think you can thwart what I've come to do, but you can't. Let the scripture be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And then there's this really, really strange verse. You want to talk about unexpected. Well, right there in the Gospel of Mark, this is unexpected. And a young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. And when they seized him, he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. Now, why is that in here? Well, most people believe that that young man was Mark. John Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, who took notes as he listened to Peter tell the gospel story and wrote this gospel for us. It's an unexpected exit. And then Jesus goes before the council. So here are the chief priests and elders and the scribes. These are the people who ought to be carrying out God's plan, his vocation for Israel, and they're failing miserably at it. And they have this trial for the Christ that they've been waiting for. All the scripture that they've ever read is all testifying that he is the son of God and here he is and they don't see him right in their midst. And so they're beating him, they're striking him, they bring about false witnesses the peculiar thing is they love the law. They want the law to be carried out to a T and they're breaking the law. They're sinning against God. They're bearing false witness. They're about to murder the son of God. None of the witnesses stick. And Jesus just continues to be silent. But then the priests ask him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? Well, that's the right question. See, people have said for centuries, Jesus didn't really claim to be God. They say it today. But it's just a, it's just a false accusation. See, that's the worst of all, probably. Of course, Jesus claimed to be God. Of course he did. And, and these people who are about to kill him, they understand it very clearly, that's why they're asking this question. And so they ask the right question and Jesus gives them an answer. You remember in Mark chapter 12, they asked him a question and he wouldn't answer it. Well, now he answers. He says, I am. This powerful statement, the I am is God, the one who was and is and is to come. And so Jesus just says, I am. And to make it all the more clear, he says, you will see the son of man. This Old Testament word for the ancient of days, the one coming, sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, if somebody walked into Temple Bible Church today, and they said, you're going to see me coming on the clouds of heaven. We think, well, they're crazy. Or, or they're just a really awful deceiver. There's only one other option. And that's that he's Lord, but they do not believe. What further witness do we need? The priest tears his garments and he says, this is blasphemy. And they condemned him as deserving death when they were the ones that deserved death because they rejected the Messiah, the Son of God. 
They began to strike him, cover his face, and scream, prophesy. And the guards took him with blows. It's an unexpected response, but he gives it. I am. And then Peter has an unexpected denial. He's below in the courtyard, and the servant girl of the high priest sees him. And she says, you, you were with the Nazarene Jesus, but he denies it, saying, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't understand what you're saying. And so he goes out to the gateway, and she says to some bystanders, this man is one of them. But Peter again denies it. And then in a little while, she says again, or a bystander says, no, you're, you're one of them. You're Galilean. He can tell by, by what he's wearing or by his accent, perhaps. And Peter invoked a curse on himself and began to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. Just hours before, if I have to die with you, I won't deny you. I do not know this man. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. When you think about Peter and this lady, Peter's a disciple of Jesus. He's an outspoken disciple of Jesus. He says, I won't deny you. I'll follow you to the death. But when it gets costly, he turns away. This lady, we don't know anything about her. We don't know her name. What we know is what she did. She worshiped and her worship got her acclaim everywhere the gospel is preached. I read a book earlier this year that talks about the difference in admirers and disciples. We would look and see the lady maybe as an admirer and Peter as a disciple, but he acts more like an admirer and she actually acts more like a disciple. See, admirers love being associated with Jesus, but when trouble comes, they either turn on him or in some way try to put distance between themselves and the Lord. The admirer wants the comfort and advantage that comes with being a Christian. But when times change and Jesus becomes a scandal or worse, the admirer folds. As Kierkegaard writes, the admirer never makes any true sacrifices. He always plays it safe. Though in words, phrases, and songs, he is inexhaustible about how highly he prizes Christ. No, 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 I, I love Jesus, right? He renounces nothing. He will not reconstruct his life around Christ, which is what a disciple will do, of course, and he will not let his life express what it is he supposedly admires. That's not so for the follower. The follower aspires with all his strength to be what he admires. Are you living as an admirer or as a disciple? And can I, can I just say, if you're living as an admirer, I've got really good news this morning. So was Peter. And so were all of Jesus' disciples. But he's going to take their sin upon himself and your sin and my sin upon himself. And he is going to utterly transform their lives. Peter is going to change into this bold witness. His life is going to be transformed by the grace of God because of this new covenant. Jesus is going to put his spirit in Peter and give him a heart to obey. So if you're admiring today and you go, man, I'm just 
blowing it. So were these guys and so am I. But he puts his spirit within us. He gives us a flesh. He writes his law on our hearts. He forgives our sins and he knows us personally and he never stops doing us good. And so our lives can be transformed just like Peter's was so that you and I can make much of Jesus Christ with our words, with the intentions of our hearts, with the thoughts of our minds and our very lives. That's the good news that Jesus lived and died and rose from the dead to change who we are. So we remember this Savior and we rejoice in Him and we ask Him to transform us. Father, that's our prayer. Would you transform our lives like you transformed Peter's life? Maybe there are people in this room that don't know you at all today. Would you forgive them, God? Would you put your spirit in them? Would you change them and draw them to you that they might know you personally and you might never depart from doing them good? God, for my brothers and sisters in this room who have just utterly blown it this week. God, would they run to the grace that is in Jesus Christ for them? Would we all? God, we thank you for this beautiful new covenant where the judgment that we deserve has fallen on Jesus and he has risen from the dead triumphant over sin and death for us, for your glory, for our good, and for the joy of the nations. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.